A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 333. Adult. More apologies for you, everyone, before we start with the history. Some time ago, I became aware of a sort of groaning sound coming from the village graveyard. So I called the vicar, who told me there was soil flying all over the place from my father's grave. On investigation, it seems the mayhem was caused by my father turning and indeed spinning in his grave. Because in the previous episode, it was of course, of course, not Mr Pickwick with the financial advice for James. It was Mr Micawber. I mean, I am shocked. The Times! I was told it was Mr Micawber. How could I make such a schoolboy error? Secondly, I met Bill who you may not know, but I met him on the lovely English Social and Local History course I have finally restarted at the Department of Continuing Education at Oxford, which is a triumph, by the way. Now, Bill is a member of this parish, I learnt, so I have two things for which I need to apologise that he pulled me up on. One is for calling Northampton the City of Dreams, without really meaning it. But a mighty fine place it is, I have no doubt. The other is for a snide comment I made about the Saints always losing to the Tigers, for which my apology is that I can't find it in my heart as a lifelong Tigers fan to regret. But it was a joy to meet you, Bill. Now, just to warn you, we are heading into a mini-storm of three episodes where I forgot myself, I threw myself away, as Samuel Johnson said, and wrote 15,000 words rather than 5,000 focusing on a famous Jacobean scandal, the Overbury Affair. Now, this is not a good thing, and it will work as woe. Well, maybe it will work you woe, I have to say, more than me. Anyway, I have tried to split it up so it's a bit more manageable. This week, then, James finally has it with Parliament and removes his toys from the perambulatory device. We start a new age of favourites, and get a bit more stuck in than we'd normally do about court and factional politics. Then the next two episodes, which I won't get to until next year, will crack on with scandal, but also with literacy and the idea of public space and opinion. Last time then we shuffled Salisbury off the mortal coil, that is the history of England, and effectively left Robert Carr, now Viscount Rochester, in control, under the guidance of his beloved mentor, Thomas Overbury. Now, I don't know about you, but I always imagined that your successful courtier could be described in many ways, but that the first one that would come to mind might be oily, or maybe smooth, urbane. I've always wanted to be called urbane, by the way, should you get the chance. But, you know, someone practised in the arts of persuasion 
and making everyone think they were your bosom pal until the knife appeared through the front of your doublet. Such does not seem to have been the case with Thomas Overbury. He seems to have been a rather arrogant man, and as we saw last week, that had already brought him into the hatred of Queen Anne, which surely isn't a good move for a courtier. The ever-gossipy John Aubrey, in his brief lives, remarked that A great question was who was the proudest, Sir Walter Raleigh or Sir Thomas Overbury? But the difference that was, was judged on Sir Thomas's side. The question was, what did others think of the man? Well, one of the things they did note about Overbury is that he had a political strategy. So as we've heard last time, Overbury had persuaded Carr to align himself with the Protestant interventionist party at court, led by the Earls of Southampton and Pembroke, with their courtier buddies, Henry Neville and Ralph Winwood. A wit at the time called them the Patriots, and I think we'll use that phrase for the faction. It's distinctive. The other major faction was what might be described as the Howard faction, of course, since it was headed by the two surviving of the Trinity of Knaves, the Earls of Northampton, Henry Howard, and of Suffolk, Thomas Howard, and a very powerful group it was. The same wit, on form that day obviously, described them as the Julians, which I think is a classical reference rather than East London nightclub. But I think we'll keep using the Howard faction because it kind of says what it does on the tin. Northampton was, of course, the suspected crypto-Catholic who attracted the distrust of some of those outside court who noted with some distress that their king appeared to preside over a court that was not the font of all value, but instead a hotbed of religious pluralism, to their eyes a bad thing. This was a view reflected in a number of libels. The Howard faction took a very different view to their patriot faction of Pembroke and Southampton. Internally, they were anything but parliamentary mutineers, and in fact, they agreed with Julius Caesar, more than Salisbury, that the answer to James's money problems lay not with that blessed place Parliament, but instead with sweating the king's prerogative. Things like customs imposition, for example, without reference to Parliament. Meanwhile, in foreign policy, rather than being Protestant and determined to intervene on the Protestant side in flare-ups like the one going on at the time in Cleves, they favoured instead building a Spanish relationship, a suggestion that put the wind up all those good Protestants in the countries outside Westminster, obviously. And James indeed was himself sympathetic towards a Spanish match, as it were, not to be confused with the Parry match, which we were supposed to read for A-level French, of course, and never did, being too busy reading Cole's notes in English. Does the Parry match still exist, I wonder? Anyway, you probably don't want to know what I'm talking about. Anyway, James believed firmly that religion had nothing to do with international relations, nor should the king be expected to pay any mind to the wishes of his subjects, Foreign affairs were purely the consideration of the king, not the oiks. While we're on it, these struggles about the direction of foreign affairs and international religious loyalties were rather neatly reflected in the royal marriage negotiations. The first of these was Anne and James's eldest daughter, 
Elizabeth. To the joy of many, she was setting her cap at Frederick V, the Count Palatine of the Rhine. Frederick indeed came over to visit, and the Gen pub were wildly enthusiastic about the match, because he was, after all, a good prot. Rather remarkably, he was not posh enough as far as the mother of the bride was concerned, but Frederick was most attentive to his squeeze, and Elizabeth was duly impressed. And of course, at the time, Prince Henry was keen too. Henry, meanwhile, was trying to fight off his dad as concerned his own marriage, which was planned to be to a Spanish princess, an idea in which the great British public was as appalled by as they were delighted by his sister's match. When Henry died, of course, the public panic about his marriage receded. But it'll be back. You can be sure of that. And that, my friend, is a plot spoiler. Anyway, so all of this was playing out at court and it was exacerbated by Salisbury's death because it seemed obvious that the winning faction would surely land the position as Secretary of State that Salisbury's death had vacated. And for this, the Patriot faction were advancing the names of Winwood and Henry Neville. But strangely, Carr seemed to be frustratingly incapable of delivering the goods for them which is daft because that is, after all, exactly what a royal favourite ought to be able to deliver. Now, an odd thing about Overborough's mate Carr, however, was that he appears to have been pretty slippery when it comes to discerning his own political colours, unlike his mentor, didn't really seem to have a political strategy or commitment. He appears to have been something of a runner with the hare and hunter with the hounds. And also, he appeared to have been surprisingly and unexpectedly friendly with the Earl of Northampton, Henry Howard, while he was supposed to be lobbying for Winwood and Neville in the face of the Howard faction. Plus, in the words of John Paul Young, love appeared to be in the air. The love of which I speak was between Robert Carr and one Francis Howard, and the love had been brokered by Thomas Overbury himself, through his pen, as it happens. Thomas seems to have written love letters for his mate Robert Carr. Your teeth are like stars, they come out at night, that sort of thing, I guess. Sounds a bit like a sixth-form TV drama, or a knight's tale, where Chaucer writes letters for the tongue-tied William. Anyway, sometime in 1612, Carr and Francis appear to have got it on, which is quite naughty, because Francis Howard was a married woman, married to the Earl of Essex, as it happens, son of the disgraced and executed Earl of Essex. Not happily married, though, Obbs. It happens that Francis Howard was the daughter of the other of the Trinity of Knaves, Thomas Howard, Earl of Suffolk, and Catherine Howard, Salisbury's erstwhile confidant. So really, Carr was apparently falling in love literally with the opposing court faction. Romeo and Juliet stuff, Capulets and the other lot. What a tangled web we weave. Anyway, Overbury, it seems, got rather cheesed off by Carr's attachment to a member of the away team, and they had a quarrel, which led to hard words, including some distinctly unfriendly comments by Overbury about France's honour, it should be noted. Now, Overbury thought they'd patched it all up, but had they? Or was Carr harbouring some deep resentments and wounds? Because things for Overbury, were about to take a downward turn.
Before they did, however, letters. Well, gilt-edged cards, maybe, started dropping through letterboxes all over England. Well, not letterboxes. Messengers started clattering into the courtyards of the mighty, let's say. James and Anne, King and Queen of Britain and all, cordially invite you to the marriage of their daughter, Elizabeth Stuart, to Frederick of the Palatine at the chapel of the Palace of Whitehall on the 14th of February and afterwards for, frankly, days of outrageously lavish ceremonies in London and Heidelberg that will cost over £50,000, which, frankly, we can ill afford. RSVP and PBAB. There was no doubt that this was a marriage and a match that was most popular with the great British public. A marriage between a fine Protestant princess and a fine Protestant prince. Cry Harry and all that. OK, back to Thomas Overbury then. One of the things about being a courtier was that everything came from the king. You were entirely dependent on his grace, favour and good opinion. It really is a most unsatisfactory way of running things. If the king took a guinea, you were toast. And it appears that James did indeed take a guinea Thomas Overbury. He saw him as an irritating obstacle to his own relationship with his beloved Robert Carr. James was not a vindictive man, but he did not want his favourite suffering from the Mary McGregor effect, torn between two lovers. And so he thought of a way that could be mutually advantageous. A generous offer that would at the same time move Overbury aside so that James could clear his way to Carr. Julie, on the 21st of April, 1613, Pembroke and others turned up at Overbury's place with an offer for him. An offer that, really, he shouldn't have refused. He was to become an ambassador. Hurrah! And he could choose his posting. It could be France, it could be the Low Countries, or it could be Muscovy. How lovely! Well, just as you don't just walk into Mordor, you don't refuse a royal appointment. This is not a contract, a job application process, where the candidate carefully considers whether the job is suited to them, every bit as much as the potential employer considers carefully whether the candidate's skills fit the job profile. Oh dearie me no, if the king calls you to public service, to public service you go. The last bloke that refused to do that was Thomas More, and look how that ended. Overbury, though, knew exactly what was going on here. He was being got out of the way, and Thomas Overbury did not want to be got out of the way, so Thomas Overbury claimed he couldn't speak the language which confused everyone, since he said, When is anybody English ever worried about such a thing? Just speak louder, wave your arms and shout, My helicopter is full of eels when in doubt, and it'll be fine. Nonplussed. Thomas then flat out refused, with some choice language along the way, I am told. And before he could say, So there with brass knobs on, his arse had hit the far end of a cell wall in the Tower of London, followed by the sound of the howls of rage of his king. Well, now, this is not good, but presumably it would not be a problem, because Overborough's bezzy, Robert Carr, would simply show his king a leg and spring his pal from the clink and get him back into his grace and favour. But it didn't seem to be working out like that. Overbury remained frustratingly stuck inside and out of the king's favour. I mean, fair dues, Overbury 
was not miserably incarcerated. He received a stream of pies and jellies and nice things from Francis Howard and a lady called Anne Taylor. Although he was strangely ill, it has to be said. So much so that he ended up having an enema administered by an apothecary boy. Sorry to mention that, it will become relevant. And Carr did organise a rapprochement with his erstwhile enemies at court, the Howard faction. So, maybe he was working around things to rehabilitate Overbury, it was just taking some time. So, Thomas swallowed his pride, to the point of actually signing a letter to the Earl of Suffolk, pledging his support in the future to their faction. And it could be that in the background, Carr was indeed working away with James to get him to forgive Overbury and have him back, although no specific evidence of that survives. And yet still, Overbury continued to languish in jail and was not sprung. And then all of a sudden, in September 1613, the news arrived at court that Thomas Overbury had died, died of a mystery illness in the tower, despite his enema. Before the end came, Overbury seems to have decided that actually his mate had, in fact, deserted him after all, whatever his protestations, and that despite all the free pies, jellies and enemas, Francis Howard hated him and wanted rid. And that she was the reason for his destruction. He wrote to Carr in a right old paddy and swore to expose his bad faith of You're sacrificing me to that woman. You're holding a firm friendship with those that brought me hither and keep me here and not making it your first act of any good terms with them to set me free and restore me to yourself again. While this tragedy was playing out, another drama was in train. Let me tell you all about it. So, Carl Squeeze Francis Howard, as we have heard, was an unhappily married woman, married through James's good offices originally in 1606 to Robert Deverer, the 15-year-old Earl of Essex and son of the failed rebel from Elizabeth's reign. Now, the 15-year-old Essex and the 14-year-old Francis Howard did not get on. Added to which, of course, Francis had started playing away with Robert Carr. So then in 1613, another bombshell hit court. Francis Howard had filed for an annulment of the marriage, on the basis that Essex had been unable to consummate the marriage. That's awkward. And to Essex's red-faced outrage, James was supportive of Francis and a month after Overborough's imprisonment, he put together an ecclesiastical commission to look at the whole affair of Essex and Francis's marriage and whether or not it should be nullified. Well, I cannot tell you of the gossip, outrage, laughter and mockery these nullity proceedings, as they were called, to investigate nullifying the marriage, produced. I mean throw a romantic lead into a pit of poisonous writhy snakes and you've got an idea of the fun that followed. But meanwhile, the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott's chin, wobbled with outrage instead and he would not countenance approving Francis's claim. Essex was, of course, utterly humiliated 
and he made a claim that he was perfectly capable of doinking with the best of them. It was just with Francis that he'd proved incapable, because he claimed that Francis had been unkind and unkeen and reviled him and miscalled him, terming him a, a coward and a beast. Which, it's true, doesn't fall into the classic foreplay category, unless I'm misinformed, of course. In court, a procession of servants were paraded in front of the court to attest to the failed attempts to achieve a result for public spectacle and a ribald comment that would have made any emperor release Wadger. All of which was horrid for Essex. But of course Frances herself had to be utterly determined and to suffer all her own indignities to drive this process forward. So, for example, a panel of matrons inspected the countess and her knicker area and found her capable of intercourse, but still a virgin, which produced a response from both the great British public and the court of hilarity, disbelief and fury, and the libelers went wild. Some of which is absolutely unprintable, I have to tell you. But just for a safe flavour of it, one ballader created a ditty along the lines of The dame was inspected, but fraud interjected, and made of greater perfection. And that is the only one I could find that was reprintable. Basically, everyone was indeed perfectly ready to believe Francis capable of intercourse, less convinced about the still a virgin bit. And then to cap it all, a clever mole at court heard the reason why all this was happening. Darn it all, Francis was fixing to marry Robert Carr. Well, who de elbow? One of the weaselly intelligences at the court spread the gossip that the world speaks liberally of their love for each other. Of course, this put the wind firmly up the Patriot faction. That looked like the end of Carr's support for Neville and Winwood in their bids for Salisbury's offices. Surely Carr had comprehensively moved over to the Howard faction. Well, sadly for James, Francis and Carr, Archbishop Abbott on the commission wasn't having any of it. So the commission was stymied, unable to make a ruling over Abbott's objections. So in late July, James carried out a well-worn tactic well-worn and much to be used in the future too in English history, as it happens, and he appointed a bunch of new commissioners to mm, cast new light on the case. And, hey presto, abracadabra and all that, the commission approved Francis's case, as James had wished all along. How spooky is that? The great British public was scandalised, the court was buzzing with gossip and rumour, Carr, Francis and James were cock-a-hoop. Overbury? was horrified, and then dead, of course. Still, Frances had left a little bomb for herself through the process. She and her legal team and the commissioners had approved the legal fiction that Essex was perfectly competent in the rumpy-pumpy department, but just not with Frances. This was a difficult argument, but important to protect Essex's blushes and to make it explicable. It was mooted by Francis's legal team that maybe they could suggest that it must have been witchcraft that got in the way of Essex's crown jewels, Maleficium. Now, this was a very complicated idea. After all, maybe the witch could have been Francis herself, and that would be awkward. So, the idea was dropped. But there was a 
speck of mud on the Countess's magnificent dress, and that speck of mud would spread, go forth and multiply among the public. But for the moment, it appeared to be a complete victory for Robert Carr. After Overbury died, he had two elaborate ceremonies that magnified and glorified his glorious name. On the 4th of November 1613, Robert Carr was formally created Earl of Somerset in a ceremony James fully intended to create a vision of unity, involving courtiers from across the factions in the investiture. I imagine that as Southampton approached the new Earl of Somerset with the cap of an earl, smiling as much as he could at his erstwhile faction partner, who appears to have deserted the Patriots, a strange grinding noise could be heard issuing from his mugglers. Then a few weeks later, there was an even more extravagant and expensive ceremony which spread its light over court on Boxing Day. Robert Carr married Frances Howard and made her the happiest Countess of Somerset ever. Should you happen to be planning a wedding, you might consider making sure they stretch out several days with masks, series of tilts from the courtiers, precious gifts showered on them from the King and City of London. Somerset was at the height of his power and influence. He became Lord Chamberlain, he sat on the Privy Council, the Howards rose yet further with him. The Earl of Suffolk became Lord Treasurer. Their faction acquired more goodies that the Crown could ill afford. They appeared unchallengeable. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. None of this, though glorious though it was for Somerset and the new Countess, stopped all the politicking and none of it removed James's basic need for money. Now everyone, especially the king, was of course worried about the forthcoming parliamentary session and how it would go, and worried about the mutineers and what they might do there. But there was some good news from Robert Carr. Edwin Sands, the uncrowned king of the commons, as a later historian would dub him, had apparently become a client of Somerset, and Somerset had duly used his influence to get him grants of land and Sands election to Parliament. Phew! Well, that must mean that particular gun had been spiked and that Sands would move from the parliamentary mutineers of the Patriots and move over to the parliamentary pussycats and all would go well for James's search for money from Parliament. So, James was finally prevailed upon to call Parliament, despite his reluctance, persuaded that this was the best way to get the money he needed to throw away on hunting and hoolies. Francis Bacon, now finally achieving his ambition to be Attorney General, suggested that James play the religion card and raise the threat of the growth of popery and thereby loosen the parliamentary pockets. 
and crucially, get supply voted on before anyone started talking about their grievances. The Earls of Suffolk and Pembroke egged him on to call Parliament, claiming that his people loved him really, James recorded later, saying they encouraged him to think that my subjects did not hate me, which I know I did not deserve. Which is really very sad, isn't it, the poor poppet? Rabbit. However, it does also rather reveal James's alienation from Parliament, does it not? There's another little wrinkle here since I have let myself off the leash on the court intrigue front. Against all the odds, Ralph Winwood had been made Secretary of State. Well, everyone's gasp was flabbered. So surprised, there was multiple grape squashing and feathers knocking people down in the street. Gosh, thought various courtiers in various corners behind various hands, we thought Somerset had changed size. And so the parliamentary mutineer and patriot faction was knackered, but here's one of their leading members getting the big prize, the big yellow banana or cuddly toy, Secretary of State, K. Passer. Well, one of the problems about the Parliament to follow, which, by way of a plot spoiler, I can reveal to you on an advance and confidential basis, will be known to history as the adult Parliament, just saying, was that the preparation by the government of managing the session should have been put in the council rubbish bins designed for landfill. And the clever money suggests that actually this was the intention all along of one devious Somerset, who took little part in the sessions that follow. Here's the idea that he had allowed Winwood to get the job of Secretary of State, despite being from a rival faction now, because he knew that Winwood had little experience of the difficult task of managing a parliament, fully expected him therefore to fail, which would give the Southampton-Pembroke Patriot faction another kick in the guts. I ask you, gentle listeners, are people really that devious? Anyway, James listened to Bacon's advice about playing the religious card, and he tried, he really did, bigging it up in his opening speech, spread of popery and all that, blah, 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 as Greta would have said, and for a while it did seem to work. Initial discussions focused on getting a quick vote through of supply and subsidies for the king. Dribbling started in the corridors of Whitehall Palace. But they reckoned without Edwin. As per normal, Sands focused first on establishing and getting himself at the heart of the great committees, so that he could thereby manage business going through Parliament, in particular getting the chair of the Committee of Petitions, the committee which marshalled the grievances brought in by members of the Commons. And it seems that Somerset had misjudged his man. He had misjudged the level of his influence over Sands, because once more, royal impositions proved a major issue in those grievances, and it was Sands, supposedly now the royal favourite's tool and owing him a scratch on the back, who instead persuaded the Commons not to allow supply to be agreed for the King before their grievances had been addressed by him. So guess what? It all kicked off again, and the impositions and baits and those darned currents all came up again. 
if the king may impose by his absolute power, no man can be certain what he has, for it shall be subject to the king's pleasure, declaimed one of the MPs, Christopher Brooke. The Commons wanted the Lords to come to the table, a joint conference to discuss those impositions and agree a common line, half-half. But Somerset, the Howards, both sitting in the Lords, they weren't having it. They wanted the King to get his wedge. But at the same time, the leadership that they, Somerset and the Council, offered Parliament was not strong, clear or indeed coercive enough to break the determination of the parliamentary mutineers. James's supporters did fight back in Parliament. One Henry Wotton, for example, claimed that hereditary princes such as James were entitled to impose, whereas elective kings were not. But on the 21st of May, Sands stood on his hind legs and put his view that there was no such distinction, that all kings were bound by a contractual relationship with their subjects. He played the French card again, the while in France... The king did indeed arbitrarily lay an imposition on salt and also made the purchase of salt compulsory. Following such French practice would quickly bring all to a tyrannical course. Rather daringly, he noted that for a king, the consequences would be disastrous, as was demonstrated by the death of the last great imposing prince, a reference to the assassination of Henry IV four years earlier. James's impositions brought England as close as it has come to be almost a tyrannical government. This is far closer to describing James as a tyrant than was sensible for Sand's life chances. Well, James had probably heard enough anyway, but just to give you a flavour of political shenanigising, Northampton, rather on his last legs physically, by the way, by now, was very much of the opinion that this parliament should never have been called anyway, and that the king should just use his prerogative to raise money on his haplet subjects and squeeze them until the pipsqueak. Anyway, rather than relying on the just-tax-the-buggers-king approach, Northampton decided to manipulate his king instead, to make James so angry with parliament that he'd cancel it in a Mardi and send it home. So what he did was to set up a friendly MP and noted literary wit, a man called John Hoskins, to do this dirty work for him and enrage the king. So Hoskins duly made a very ranty speech about how much the Scots were filling their pockets and weren't they awful. Hoskins mixed his invective with wit, always a good idea, and said that a wise prince would send these strangers home as Canute had done. The reference to the Scots was as subtle as a Greg's sausage, cheese and beans melt. He also told a risque story about the murder of the French king's entourage at the Sicilian Vespers, suggesting that might be a good approach for the Scots to follow. That was it, James had had it. James dissolved Parliament and sent everyone home. Its failure to achieve anything at all earned it the name in the textbooks, as I mentioned, as the adult Parliament and the fact that it passed no acts at all probably means it wasn't legally a parliament anyway. In a paddy, James ordered the notes of the conference about impositions delivered to him, and he tore them up publicly in the banqueting hall of Whitehall Palace in an absolute rage. I do hope that didn't get embarrassing and he did tear them up in easy chunks. 
could have gone so badly wrong. Sands was called in, Sands was carpeted and imprisoned for a month, along with three other GPs. James vented his spleen afterwards to the Spanish ambassador, Gondomar, that this English Parliament thing was rubbish, completely out of control. Its members voted without rule or order, amid cries, shouts and confusion. We do love tradition here. He said he'd found this thing when he arrived and had been unable to do anything about it. Gondomar smoothly reminded him that Parliament only got to meet when he said it did. A large bell rang in James's mind. James and his loyal favourite and his Howard faction would now search for alternative sources of revenue and rather like his son many years in the future, James resolved to rule without Parliament if he possibly could and for seven years he would. The first wheeze to raise money was a thing you might remember from medieval days, the delightfully named benevolence. Basically, give us a loan or I'll send my big brother around, that sort of thing. Last done in 1546. But actually the thing raised a lot of protest, but also raised 65,000 quid, which is a goodly amount. So despite all this carping from the commons, it does seem there was in fact plenty of support for James amongst the wealthier members of his kingdom. There would be other schemes that will come to at some point, but the council was now on the lookout for clever money-raising ideas to keep their king out of Parliament and their Parliament out of the king's face. Meanwhile, of course, by May 1614, the debt had risen to £680,000. Talking of Northampton, as we did, we have come to the point when we must finally say goodbye to another of the naval trinity. For Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton, finally got round to having an operation to remove a tumour on his thigh and going for medical surgery in those days probably wasn't a good option. So, of course, it got infected. He died of gangrene. His will strongly suggested that, yes, he was indeed a Catholic he was childless, so his estate went to the titular head of the Howard clan, the Earl of Arundel. That's the thing about the Howards, let me tell you. They get everywhere, like a carpet of daisies, or alternatively, you know, like mould. Somerset then, in his pomp, worked with his master on raising money and in promoting the idea of a Spanish marriage for Prince Charles, now that his older brother Henry was dead. Because a Spanish marriage, of course, carried with it not just the diplomatic advantage, but the prospect of a whopping great dowry from Europe's richest empire. But had Somerset looked down, he might have noticed that the seemingly solid rock on which he was standing was crumbling under his delicate little toes. For a couple of reasons. The first was in the form of a gilded youth, one George Villiers, George was a member of the minor gentry whom James's gaydar had identified on the summer progress of 1614. Those courtiers, less than adequately gruntled with Somerset, thought that injecting a new beautiful favourite into the court bloodstream might well undo Somerset. And by spring 1615, court was in a full factional bust-up. Somerset did not take this rival to his golden goose, very well at all, and he started taking it out on his king and best mate. James was rather set back by this, is known 
definitely put out a joint. Kings weren't used to being berated. He called Somerset's behaviour a strange frenzy. So powdered and mixed with strange streams of unquietness, passion, fury and insolent pride, and with a settled kind of induced obstinacy. Somerset had clearly lost it, and James warned his old favourite that he needed to behave, and that James's grace and favour was not to be taken for granted. If I ever think ye to retain me by one sparkle of fear, all the violence of my love will in that instance be changed into as violent a hatred. However, dangerous as this was, there was actually a second thing worse to follow, which we will come to next year. But before we go, I have started the weekly word habit, only as an occasional thing, I promise, but I do seem to have come across a few. And as I listened to the aged M apologise for not eating her crusts at breakfast the other day, a crime of which I was frequently berated 50 years ago or so, I came across an article on Twitter in response to one of Alan Allport's history tweets. Alan is a member of this parish and also the author of Britain at Bay, the story of Britain in 1938 to 1941, which has received rave reviews from all over, actually, and which Alan refers to as award-winning. I think the award may have been from his mum, but don't quote me. But it sounds excellent. Anyway, someone mentioned in this Twitter exchange with Alan the story of the jolly boat of the World War II merchant ship SS Anglo-Saxon, which is currently on display at the Imperial War Museum in London. And it's a rather remarkable story. So the Anglo-Saxon was carrying coals to Argentina when it was caught by a German ship, the Vida, on the open seas and sunk. Three lifeboats escaped from the SS Anglo-Saxon, two of which were seen by the Vida and duly sunk. Not sure if that's cricket or not, but look, it's ancient history, I guess. Anyway, seven folks managed to get onto the SS Anglo-Saxon's jolly boat. And what follows is an amazing story. Of these people, with minimal supplies of food and water. Although the Atlantic was full of traffic at the time and therefore there was a good chance of someone picking the lifeboat up, the jolly boat was in fact not seen. And with each passing day, the chances of their survival fell for the seven seamen. As the days dragged by, days turned into weeks and weeks ladies and gentlemen, turned into months, would you believe. Five of the seven men died, including one Francis Penny, who was recorded as having slipped overboard. Slipped overboard is apparently a euphemism for having decided to commit suicide so as to give the others a greater chance of survival. The remaining two men survived 70 days on the open seas until they finally made landfall in the Bahamas. The jolly boat that they'd been saved in did the rounds until finally in 1997 it was returned to the UK and there it is in the Imperial War Museum. Anyway, this has turned into a story and I mentioned the weekly word. Well, I give you the weekly word of jolly boat. Jolly boat, what a fantastic word. You would surely feel just a little bit better about life when you stepped onto your jolly boat, would you not? although almost impossible not to do the Dr Spooner thing and call it a bolly joke. Go on, just try to avoid that now, I've put it in your brain. Bolly joke. Anyway. 
in the normal run of things, you know that being on a jolly boat must be jolly. But where does the word come from, I wondered. Well, one of the problems of covering naval history, I can reveal, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy, is that the answers are almost as impenetrable as the questions. So here is the answer for what a jolly boat is from the Oxford English Dictionary. A clinker-built ship's boat, smaller than a cutter, with a bluff bow and a very wide transom, usually hoisted at the stern of the ship and used chiefly as a hack boat for small work. Well, good golly, Miss Molly. That's cleared that up then. Let me unpick that like a history exam gobbet. Clinker boat, as you'll probably know, is where you have overlapping planks forming the hull of the boat, except in the OED it's spelt wrongly, C-L-I-N-C-H-E-R, so it should clearly be pronounced clincher. Have I been saying it wrong all my life when I call it clinker? Answers on a postcard. A cutter has nothing to do with a cookie, but again, as you may know, is a small vessel attached to a ship of war. Although it's also a name for a bigger ship built for speed. Why can't people use different names for different things? Come on, keep it clean, everyone. A bluff bow, I assume, is a flat bow like the mirror dinghy that my dad used to try and force me unsuccessfully to sail. I always wondered why you'd have a flat front. How useful is that? Doesn't it just make you go slowly? Anyway, a wide transom was referred to in the description of the jolly boat. This is a cross piece, apparently. So presumably the fact that it's quite wide made the boat sort of wide and flattish. And then hack boat. Well, a hack boat is a boat used for odd jobs. The name apparently comes from the word for a horse for hire, a worn out old nag, an old hack. Interesting in the word hack comes from the North London village of Hackney, presumably because horses were reared and farmed in the meadows around the village before it got covered in concrete and tarmac. So finally, with angels and archangels, having translated the explanation for a jolly boat, I can get to the point. Why is it called a jolly boat? Is it, I wonder, because it's a jolly little thing, hopping merrily over the waves while it's jolly jack tar swing grog and sing shanties on their way to a good old sing-song down at the harbour pub. Well, not, apparently. There are two alternatives to the word jolly boat. One is that it is a corruption and shortening of jellywakta, which means the same kind of boat, but, but centuries before. And that itself could be a corruption of galeotta, a small galley in Spanish or Portuguese. So that all sounds logical. Or it could relate to small boats in many Germanic languages, such as the Danish Jolle, a small boat in the 17th century. However, people doubt that because although they're spelled with a J, they are pronounced with a Y. I am sorry, as with all of these things, sometimes the journey is better than the arrival. Though I was interested to see that a Jolly is also a name for a Royal Marine. Who'd have thought it? And a Tame Jolly was a name for a militiaman, which sounds like a sort of regular army put-down for the part-timers. Anyway, there you go. Jolly boat. There you are. This is it, then, everyone, the last podcast of the year. I shall return on the 2nd of January. Can I just make a quick pitch? If at any stage you are looking for a late Christmas present, or indeed at any time for a birthday present of some kind, why not give your best friend, as a reward, a membership of the History of England? It's very simple, very quick, 
There is no shipping time, of course. Just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and you will see a nice reassuring banner there to click on, which will, will explain how you do it. But thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening all year. And I hope you and your families have the very best Christmas and New Year ever. And I look forward to seeing you again in a rollicking 2022. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.